This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When we first embarked on our nuclear program, most industrialized nations were very critical of us. Their disapproval, even hostility, continues. Cooperation is withheld and solemn agreements are lightly set aside. It is clear that in order to meet our growing requirements of energy for agriculture and industry, we must produce more electricity. We cannot depend only on one source. Excessive reliance on hydroelectric power makes us vulnerable to drought. We need a balanced combination. Our policy is to harness all sources, water, coal, the wind, the sun and the tides, biomass and the autumn. However, as I have said, our science, particularly our nuclear science, is dedicated to development, to achieving freedom from want and providing the essentials of an honorable life for our masters. I repeat that we have no intention of embarking on any nuclear weapons program. We want, as someone has said, to make the deserts bloom and not to make the world a desert. That was Prime Minister Indira Gandhi in 1974 explaining the reasons for India's nuclear test. So it took place as I said in the last episode on 18th of May 1974. This is the final episode of our series Atomic India. In this fifth episode, I'll be talking about what happens after the test. How does the rest of the world react? What happens inside India? What happens to India's nuclear program after the explosion in Pokhran in 1974? Let's get there now. So, when the test finally occurred, the government was in difficulty. It had spent enormously in the previous years on the Bangladesh war. On top of that, it had to cope with the influx of 10 million refugees in West Bengal. Obviously, there were food shortages since the middle of 1973. The government had to shell out uh, 200 million US dollars to import food from Canada, from US and Argentina. There was also a serious foreign currency shortage. which was caused partly by the rise uh, of international smuggling and india was uh, a thriving part of that in early 1974 it was officially accepted that india had been experiencing a major inflation the rate was as much as 25% it was deeply affecting the cost of food and energy the index number of wholesale prices and this is according to the official economic survey was that prices rose 26 points between 72 and 73 and they rose by 64 points between 1973 and 1974 In March 1974, India borrowed 
74.4 million US dollars from the International Monetary Fund to offset the losses in trade. And immediately after the nuclear test began, India was negotiating special oil credits from Iran and Iraq. A lot of money was required, new money was required for sophisticated and costly projects like reactors, satellites and missiles. The cost of rice and supply of kerosene were really the issues at the time, not exactly the cost of reactors or satellites or missiles. So the explosion did take place in May 1974. You already heard me in the last episode uh, talking about Raja Ramanna as though he had been leading it. But he did not mention Homi Setna, the chairman of Atomic Energy Commission. Ramanna gives no clue to Setna's role in the test preparations. The two men maintained an uneasy arms-length relationship throughout. Now, Setna was an engineer. He was not a physicist and was not involved in the technical problems and uh, maintained a discreet silence about his role and about his views, except for occasional interviews. But it is known that he resented the manner in which Raja Ramanna sought and appropriated the credit which occurred from the test after May 1974. Now, this is a story of some factionalism among the various uh, groups of Indian scientists associated with the explosion. Another delicate issue was the relationship between um, Bhabha Atomic Research Center and DRDO, Defense Research and Development Organization. Before 1972, the BARC and the DRDO had not worked together on any project which involved high-level secrecy. Now, their collaboration was thus rather surprising. They followed different institutional cultures. But uh, thanks to uh, Professor B.D. Nag Chaudhary, who was the advisor to the defense minister, things went smoothly on the Pokhran project. He was not a military officer, Nag Chaudhary. He was a scientist himself. The DRDO's contributions to the Pokhran experiment that is, the development of the lenses and fabrication of the high explosives were very significant. Meanwhile, the atomic scientists had to do something about foreign exchange. In late 1972, the Department of Atomic Energy had proposed the sell of India-made zircaloy-clad fuel rods for CANDU which is Canadian uh, deuterium uranium, these can-do reactor rods they proposed to sell to Canada and to Canadian a branch of the General Electric. 
Now, the scientists argued that these special fuel rods were equal or better quality than Canadian-made fuel rods. And because of the differences in the cost of highly skilled labor, which was far less in India, they are actually more efficient than those made in Canada. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi ordered a large press conference on the day of the explosion. That was in contrast with a usual pattern of operation, which was an annual end-of-the-year news conference. Later, she gave a long interview to a team of journalists from Newsweek. Her office produced a 26-page transcript of the interview, which was sent across to Indian journalists. An observer commented on the singular significance of this interview and its transcript. He said, and I quote, that except for pro-CPI journals, the only interview given to an Indian journalist during the last 12 months was to the biographer of a mother and was largely of a non-political nature. Unquote. Let's return to Raja Ramanna. How much did the explosion cost India? And I quote, In truth, compared to other countries, it cost us very little and was more a byproduct of other activities, unquote, Raja Ramanna said. Now, official estimates of the cost of the test were uh, 4 lakh US dollars or about uh, 3.2 million rupees. Homi Setna said that uh, India spent seven times more money on nuclear research in agriculture and medicine than it spent on these tests. Now, these official estimates are consistent, but they carefully exclude the cost of the necessarily long training of personnel and expensive technical preparations before the decision to go ahead occurred in 71-72. Official accounting also omitted the cost of medical consequences of the tests and the site cleanup and waste management. It also omits the effects and consequences for the atomic energy program and the economy of the withdrawal of all Canadian and most U.S. assistance to existing and planned nuclear power plants, which soon followed. A more complete and realistic estimate uh, would probably place the BROM project somewhere at uh, 1.76 billion between 1969 or uh, 1974, or um, to 220 million US dollars in 1974 values. And this figure does not include the post-1974 costs. Now, in the period between 1971 to 
to 75, the Department of Atomic Energy, including the space program in 71 and 72, consumed on an average uh, 21% of India's research and development budget every year. CSIR consumed 14, 14%. 13% was consumed by Indian Council of Agriculture Research and 12% by the DRDO. Indian Council of Medical Research took only 1.6% of the total budget for R&D in India. Then there was the question of how much credit must be given to indigenous technologies. Despite the fact that uh, plutonium came from a reactor of Canadian design built by India and Canada, and a reactor moderated by American heavy water, those who believed in the virtue of indigenous technology development claimed that uh, this first bomb test was indigenous. After all, the preparations had all occurred in India, calculated and thought through by Indian scientists. But for many of the colleagues of these people, a nuclear bomb was not the indigenous technology they had advocated. Now, how really did it serve the people? And how did it strengthen science in India? There was indeed a reception of genuine joy in some quarters, not just among scientists and technologists in um, Baba Atomic Research Center and Department of Atomic Energy. Yet, the majority of the center-left elite soon articulated an uneasy and mixed view of India's new position. And I quote, India is perhaps the only country to have gone nuclear, with three-fourths of its population below the poverty line. You do not become a power, and certainly not a nuclear power, when you are on the threshold of economic chaos. Unquote. That was Economic and Political Weekly on March 8, 1975. What happens then? On 22nd May 1974, which were uh, four days after the Pokhran test, the Cabinet Committee on Science and Technology met. Indira Gandhi obviously was present. And they were to discuss the complete science and technology plan, which was first discussed in uh, 1972. It required uh, 10 billion rupees of committed expenditure, plus 10 billion rupees for new plan projects, plus another 3 billion rupees. The Prime Minister said it must be done, and the science and technology plan and 
attacks were approved. During 1974 and 75, the Committee of Secretaries screened around 1,000 foreign collaboration agreements. They removed negative technology transfer clauses from 350 of them and they put positive clauses of technology transfer. Surprisingly, yet, India's nuclear test of 1974 did little to advance the prospects of nuclear energy in the immediately following years. The scientists were of course hailed as heroes, but that did not remove India's domestic problems. Indira Gandhi's approval ratings increased following the Pokhran test, but within a few months, it had also fallen to new lows. Like the previous three decades, the direction of India's nuclear program was subjected to the whims and fancies of the Prime Minister. And a stable research path or continuous high-level support was still absent. It was no surprise, therefore, that contrary to international expectations, India did not continue with a nuclear testing program after the May 1974 Pokhran test. However, the consequences following the Pokhran blast were greater than Mrs. Gandhi had been expecting. Most importantly, Canada immediately stopped all assistance for the Rajasthan reactor and the heavy water plant. It demanded that India submit to safeguards before cooperation could continue. India was also dependent on US-supplied fuel for the two reactors at Tarapur. Now that agreement would be strained for years to come. Additionally, the US sought to strengthen export controls. In cooperation with other countries, um, they prepared what is called a trigger list of dual-use items. Items on that list were not to be exported unless the country receiving them was under IAEA safeguards. Now, the US acted unilaterally, directly in response to India's nuclear test, to stop nuclear proliferation by passing what is called the Symington Amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act in 1976 and then the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act in 1978. So, in addition to these um, external limitations on nuclear activities, India's domestic fortunes also took a turn for the worse. Mrs. Gandhi's political fortunes were declining. The opposition was uniting against her. There was social unrest throughout India and the economy was on a downswing. In 1975, 
Mrs. Gandhi was found guilty of corrupt election practices. And that invalidated her hold on power. In response, she called for the president to proclaim a national emergency. That allowed her to arrest opposition leaders and opponents within her own party. She censored the press and put a virtual hold on democracy until 1977. During this period, which is the emergency, her energy was spent on improving the economy and the fortunes of the poor. There was really no time or attention to spare on nuclear energy. Indira Gandhi's decline and the rise of a long-time political rival Morarji Desai into the position of the Prime Minister in 1977 um, started a new round of problems for the nuclear scientists. Now, Mrs. Gandhi was willing to entertain nuclear ambitions. Morarji Desai was completely anti-nuclear. He reportedly told an interviewer that, and I quote, I will give it to you in writing that we will not manufacture nuclear weapons. Even if the whole world arms itself with the bombs, we will not do so. Unquote. Desai's commitment to the nuclear arena was limited limited only to ensuring the continuation of the supply of U.S. fuels for Tarapur and to global disarmament. Quite obviously, under this high leadership, the atomic energy establishment lost much of its power, prestige and influence. Fortunately for them, Desai would not last too long. His government too failed in um, 1979 and in July, Charan Singh was elected Prime Minister. Now, Charan Singh too had uh, only a brief stint in power. Indira Gandhi was back in January 1980. And she immediately reversed Desai's commitment to abstaining from nuclear explosions. She asserted, and I quote, There'd be no hesitation in conducting these in national interests. She was referring to uh, nuclear tests. Now, Mrs. Gante inherited a nuclear establishment that... Uh, over the last six years had suffered greatly from a kind of benign neglect. Heavy water plants were years behind schedule, construction of new facilities was delayed and scientists were demotivated. Mrs. Gandhi was of course aware of the growing threat from Pakistan and the neglected nuclear establishment now moved to strengthen the nuclear capability of India and restore the power of the Atomic Energy Commission. According to some reports, the Vaba Atomic Research Center 
now began to manufacture nuclear explosive components, including um, 12 kilograms of plutonium-14. In 1981, the U.S. intelligence discovered some evidence of excavations in possible preparation for an underground nuclear test in Pokhran. Now, although 70% of those polled up in 1981 in favor of uh, nuclear weapons and discussions in parliament leaned towards a more robust nuclear policy, um, Indira Gandhi was not so forthright. She declared that a nuclear device would be detonated only if, and I quote, it is in the interest of our science or development, unquote. In late 1982 or early 1983, however, Mrs. Gandhi was asked by leaders of the Atomic Energy Establishment in India to give her approval for a second nuclear test. According to um, interviews conducted by a researcher and a single published source, the director of BARC, Raja Ramanna, and the director general of DRDO, presented a plan to Mrs. Gandhi and her advisors to test a new nuclear device. According to the scientists who made that plan, this test would be a single experiment to determine if a new design, which was significantly lighter but with a much higher yield-to-wealth ratio than uh, the 1974 device, would detonate as predicted. Now, initially, Indira Gandhi um, appeared to be approving the test. Finally, for some reason that's not entirely clear, Mrs. Gandhi apparently changed her mind and withdrew her authorization. That was 1983. Nine years have passed since the first nuclear explosion at Pokhran in 1974. In the 10 years after the first nuclear explosion, India had not really moved forward. Scientists were not clear about a roadmap. There was no institutional robust research plan without active patronage of the politicians in part. There were political uncertainty at the union government. There were too many changes in the prime ministers and their authority. And the nuclear research plan had been faltering. Now, this is where uh, the Indian nuclear research had reached more or less in the middle of 1980s. Where does it go from here? Of course, we know, looking back, that India would carry out a nuclear device explosion once again in 1998. 
But if you were standing in 1984 and asked to predict what in what or where India's nuclear policy research would go in the next 20 years, I am pretty sure you'd not be extremely optimistic about its prospects. So what really changed since then? Those changes, of course, would be a different story altogether and call for another series. For this series, Atomic India, I'd now call for a halt. It's been a wonderful five weeks talking to you about the various vicissitudes of India's nuclear research since the 1930s right up to the 1980s. I'll see you next week with yet another exciting episode and another exciting series. I look forward to it. I'll have more to talk about it in the teasers coming shortly. See you then.